can be found on the inside of our bulletin. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and so here we are at Luke 6, 43, 45. We've been going through what uh, 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 scholars call the Sermon on the Plain, which is very, very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been speaking to his disciples while the crowd has been listening. If you remember last week, uh, we were talking about the uh, removing the speck in one's eye so you can see clearly, excuse me, the, mo- uh, the beam to remove the speck, and this is what follows right here. Hear God's word. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. The word of the Lord. Well, I got a wake-up call from my wife uh, this week who informed me that it was time to get back into shape. Perhaps you cannot quite tell from this uh, cloak that I'm wearing. I'm actually glad to wear this because it sort of conceals my uh, lack of boyish figure here. But uh, nonetheless, she told me it's time to get in shape, Rodriguez. And I confess, I think she's right. And so I talked to her, I asked, well, what what, would I need to do? You know, do I need to try a diet or something? And, uh, you know, she was mentioning different things and she mentioned this diet and she was called the paleo diet. I said, oh, what's the paleo diet? It's like a diet of meat. It's like a carnivorous diet. I said, that's exactly what we're doing at Meat Fest. We're a healthy church. No, I said, well, why do they call it paleo? And she said, it's very easy. Well, you have to go find and hunt and kill and cook and clean your own meat. And so by the time you've done all that, you'll have lost weight simply from going and doing that. So, you know, to catch a squirrel or a rabbit, paleo diet, great idea. Who thought of that? Well, I thought about new clothes maybe, you know, maybe it's time to put on a new... By the way, people may be wondering, why are you wearing this uh, black robe? And my comment is threefold. Number one, we're in a Presbyterian church. And as uh, the saying goes, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. The second is, you know, a lot about a, a uniform a person wears, you can tell their function. You know, think about it. If you go into a doctor's uh, office or you go into a hospital, uh, the doctor's wearing a white coat. Why? There's an illustration to the function that they have. It's a function to heal, uh, to study, to inspect. Or if you go and you see a policeman on the street, you see the badge and the blue uniform, and the equipment and the sign of authority. So what exactly is the garb that a pastor should wear? It's very interesting the different types of vestments available. Used to be this all the time. But often you'll see two other things. The first is a suit and a tie. And please, I'm not meaning to disparage anyone, but I'm just communicating. The image of a pastor now is sort of a CEO. He's the one that runs the organization. And so he's going to make sure we're going to move all the, you know, the things in the right way. And you know, I'm one of the few pastors I know that used to be a CEO of an organization. But this church is different than that. It's supernatural. My job is not to be a CEO. So I don't wear that outfit. I could have come out in some ripped jeans and kind of a cool hat and a cool look. And I'm not disparaging them either. Perhaps that was the clothes change that was needing to happen for me to look more attractive in my wife's eyes. I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter about it at all. But you see, a lot of people from the pulpit now, the, the, the way they see it is... My job is to come alongside you and give you some tips. 
as a friend, as a counselor on how to have a better marriage or how to live a better life. But God's word is more than that, isn't it? This robe of the Presbyterian is what's called a Geneva robe. You wear them now when you go and you graduate. It's the symbol of someone who has studied. It's the symbol of someone who has been trained and approved to share with you the most important word of all, God's word. See, the truth of the matter is, my guess is you did not come here for advice. I mean, if you want good advice, my suggestion to you is a Ricky Lake at three o'clock or Oprah. That's advice. No, you came for more than that. You came to hear, what does God have to say to me? Is there a word that God has to say to me? And so I take on the daunting task of sharing with you what God has spoken clearly in his word and how it is to affect us. So that is why I'm wearing this robe and will continue to unless it gets too hot and then I may have to work on some Gore-Tex thing or something, I don't know. Well, the truth of the matter is we can only change so much on the outside, right? Our clothes, our diet, our new mental outlook. Anyone heard this term before, life hacks? A life hack? It's like, uh, you know, on a computer code, when the codes, you want to hack it to make it better. And so there's this concept of life hacks. If I can find sort of the secret way to be more confident or the secret way to be more happy in my life, everything will be all right. But Jesus is saying in this passage, no. Rather, there is an inexorable connection between what is inside and what is outside. In the same way as a tree, its identity is shown by the fruit that it bears. See, the truth of the matter is when I get to the end of all of my changes, I come to the inescapable fact that I cannot escape myself. I cannot live and change from the outside in. It must be from the inside out. And as I look at my life and I look at the mistakes I've made and the challenges that I have to face, I have to ask myself the question, where am I going to go to get more life, more love, more peace, to become the parent and father that God wants me to be? When I look in the mirror, how do I become the man that God desires and expects me to be? Well, we see in this passage the secret that by changing the inner, the outer can be changed. Not an outside-in approach, but rather an inside-out approach. That Christ has the ability to come into the human heart and not reform it, but transform it. So that we literally live in a different way because we are different people. See, the truth of the matter is we cannot change who we are on our own. But we can change who we are because we can change whose we are. The ownership of our life determines our identity. And so we're going to look at three specific points in this passage that help us to understand what I'm talking about. Number one, point number one. By the way, I always use three points. So if you're here for the first time, always three points. Keep it simple. Number one, you can't change from the outside in. Everyone's sort of nodding their head going, yeah, yeah, we know that. But we really have to get to the bottom of it, whether that is true or not. You can't change from the outside in. Number two, Jesus changes from the inside out. Not talking about more relation, excuse me, religion. We're talking about transformation. And then finally, number three, we can choose to live from the inside out or the outside in. So you can't change from the outside in. Jesus changes from the inside out and choosing to live from the inside out. Well, let's look at this passage, verse 643. Jesus says, For no good tree bears fruit, 
nor again does a bad tree, a bad tree bear good fruit. Now the first question we have to ask is, who is he talking to? You know, whenever you see the word for at the beginning of a sentence, you have to look back to see what came before. And as I said, the passage that came before was Jesus speaking, why do you look into your brother's eye? And you complain and want to take out the problem in his, his eyes since you haven't done it yourself. First remove the speck in your eye. And then he goes on and says, for every good tree bears good fruit and so on and so on. So one could make the argument he's talking to the, the disciples here. But if you go to Matthew 7.15, he uses the same passage where he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, watch out for the false prophets. They come to us in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By your fruit you will recognize them. Do you people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from uh, thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. In other words, really who Jesus is speaking to is everybody. He's speaking to bad people. He's speaking to good people. Because the concept, the truth is universal. I think we understand this, this universal principle, right? Judge a tree by its fruit. Because we experience it in life all the time. First, we experience it uh, in nature simply by the very illustration itself. A tree and its fruit. You know, it, there's a law of nature. I don't know if you've ever gone picking on a Carter, a p apple picking at Carter Mountain in Charlottesville. They've got everything laid out exactly, uh, you know, in these different blocks. And I go and I wonder myself, you know, they all look the exact same to me. How do I know which one is which? Which tree is which? Well, it's simple. Pick out the fruit. Because the fruit identifies the tree. If you go to the Pungo Strawberry Festival, you'll see in the beginning these rows and rows of uh, soil covered with black tarp and straw. And at the certain point they come up. But if you go blueberry picking, you're not going to look for one of those, are you? You're going to look for a, a shrub, a place to grab blueberries. We were just in Nicaragua a little while ago, and if you wanted to find a coconut or a mango, you wouldn't start looking on the ground unless it had fallen and killed someone and there it was laying right next to them. Because these things are up high in the sky. You know the fruit by the tree. We understand the identity, but I think Jesus is talking about something even more. Not just the amoral quality of it, but the moral quality of it. You judge the tree not only by its identity, but the quality of the fruit it produces, right? We say this all the time, you know, oh, it's a good tree or it's a bad tree. Well, trees aren't good or bad, are they? It's based on the fruit they're providing. You know, I've had this tree in my yard for whatever, but it never bears fruit still a fig tree, it just doesn't bear figs. This law is not only with trees, it's with people. It's a moral law, right? Quality and identity are the same in the world of people. By your fruit, by the fruit that people bear, you recognize them. So I used to be in the business world for a long time, in business development, and I learned a couple axioms in business that have proven true to me. Number one, you can't do a good deal with a bad man. You can try to do it, you can try to make it happen, but it just doesn't seem to happen. Why? Because you can't do a good deal with a bad man, because a bad man puts together a bad deal, which ultimately bears bad fruit. I've learned that lesson multiple times. 
How about this one, this quote by Malcolm Forbes? You can easily judge the character of a man by how he treats those who can do nothing for him. It's the truth. It's the fruit and the tree. Evidence in the life helps us to understand the inner nature. How about Lillian Vernon here? I love this quote. She says, we don't teach our employees how to be nice. We hire nice people. It's too hard to teach somebody to be nice that doesn't have that quality, that intrinsic nature. Why don't we just have someone, find someone that has that nature because it will bear itself out in the fruit that it has. From the beginning of mankind, God has always expected man to bear fruit, right? Adam and Eve, remember? God blessed them and he put them in the garden. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And he took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. See, that God has an expectation upon humanity to be fruitful and multiply. Indeed, to take this beautiful garden called creation and to watch over it and tend it, to bring a return on the investment, so to speak. And what is the investment? What is the fruit that God is looking for from the lives of humanity? Well, I think we understand why God created man in His image. Because one who is in the image of God should, by very nature, illustrate and demonstrate the bearing of fruit consistent with the qualities of the person. Right? God creates the world and He says what? It's good. Because He's good. And so there's an expectation of fruit. But we are the steward of the garden. We're not the owner, are we? We realize that it's not our fruit, that we're giving the fruit to another. We've been given a garden to tend. So remember Adam and Eve. I've given you this garden, this fruit to sustain you. Take it and multiply. But there's some fruit you may not eat. These particular fruits. In other words, not all of this belongs to you. You're to tend it. And so lo and behold, when they fall and then their children, Cain and Abel, are raised up, right? And they start producing their own fruit. They do what they're supposed to. They Each of them bring a gift to God, right? The first fruits of their offering. And Abel's, God likes. But Cain's, God does not like. There's something about the fruit that's wrong. Now, I don't think that Cain necessarily brought him ugly fruit. I think he was too smart for that. Something on the inside wasn't matching the outside. Something lacked quality and God could see it. Because the fruit reveals the heart. We know what happens. Cain kills Abel shortly thereafter. First John puts it this way. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he do that? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. We fast forward in the Old Testament and you know the Old Testament was all about gardening as well, wasn't it? The word, when God created a new garden called the temple, He appointed people to guard it and tend it. They were called the priests. In fact, the very same word used to guard and tend for the priests of the temple is the word that Adam and Eve were given to guard and tend the garden. So the priests were the one who was supposed to bring in the fruit, right? From the people, to present it to God. 
And God's expectation was the best. When anyone brings from the herd a flock or a fellowship offering, it must be free, without, uh, free from defect or blemish to be acceptable. It must be pure. But as time went on, just like Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, the priests less and less became interested in what the actual quality of the good was. They were simply going through the motions. Was it not God who said, these people honor me with their voices, but their hearts are far from me? And so the production was bad fruit. And there's always an accounting for the fruit of our lives. I think we intuitively understand that there is an accounting that we will all have to give for our life. I get to pastor and counsel people of all different ages. And the older someone gets, the more I discover their desire to leave a legacy, to go ahead and examine what is the fruit of my life, to bear something to illustrate their life. And I think some of it is they understand that impending visit they're going to have with the one who they were stewarding the fruit for. Maybe you're hearing this message and it's convicting to you and you're realizing, wow, I need to start doing the right things. I'm bearing the wrong fruit. Carlos, thank you for this wonderful religion. But guess what? You can't change from the outside in. No matter how hard you try, outside in is not going to work. Because Jesus clearly said, no good tree bears bad fruit. And no bad tree bears good fruit. There are some certain absolutes in the Bible that you simply can't get around, no matter how good your intentions to change. How about this, 1 Corinthians 12, 3? Therefore I tell you that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There has to be a change in my heart in order to put God in His proper place. It's not simply a matter of trying harder, working harder. How about this? 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. For he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You don't even know how to start living because without the Spirit of God you cannot understand what God's ways are. God's will is. I remember looking at a Bible before I became a Christian at age 18 and it looked like gibberish to me. It didn't make any sense because I didn't have any spiritual understanding. I can't will that in myself. How about this one? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No one has ever birthed themselves, have they? I don't remember trying harder in order to come out into the world sooner. It's a gift from above. And so the last thing I want you to do is hear this message and walk out the door and say, I've got to clean up my life. It's time to get going. He's exactly right. It's not going to work. Because Jesus said, I told you, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. We can't change who we are. I don't know if you have ever read the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Very famous story written by Robert Louis Stevenson in Victorian England uh, during the time of the Victorian era in, in England. And it was a very interesting story. It was about a doctor, Henry Jekyll, a very mild-mannered, high 
highfalutin person of society, well-respected. And it's told from the perspective of this uh, lawyer. His name is Utterson. And Utterson is walking down the street one day and he sees this uh, vile man come out and without even thinking there's a, woman, there's a girl in his way and he simply walks over and, and tramples her. Even seems that he's enjoying it and walks on. Utterson is horrified and accosts the man who he doesn't recognize. And after making sure that the child is fine, he, he orders that he pays restitution and Hyde says, I will do it. And he goes and he gets a check and he brings it back and lo and behold, the check is from Edward Jekyll. Something's not making sense. You see, Utterson is the lawyer for Jekyll, Henry Jekyll, excuse me. And he sees that uh, Hyde has been now named the, the uh, heir of the inheritance. Utterson's a good friend. He doesn't want this inheritance to fall into the hands of Hyde. And so he tries to explain to Jekyll what's going on, this bad person who you've taken into your company. But we all know the story, don't we? Jekyll has been taking and making this potion, and when he drinks the potion, he turns into this alter ego, this antisocial, uh, evil man who doesn't even look like the, uh, the physician himself. And he goes and he does these terrible things. But as he continues to do this, he doesn't seem to be able to change back as much. He needs more and more of the potion where it was harder to turn into Hyde. Now it becomes harder and harder to turn into Jekyll. Finally, there is no more potion left. And he ultimately commits suicide after leaving a note. You know, we often hear that story and we think about sort of it's good versus bad. One and the other and it looks like bad one out. But if you really look at the story, the issue was not Hyde, the issue was Jekyll. See, Jekyll harbored these influences inside of his heart, these dark thoughts, if you will. But they didn't jive with the life, with the reputation that he had, and yet he couldn't seem to get away from them. And so he was trying to find a way to express what was inside without ruining what was outside. And so slowly, who really came out of Edward Jekyll was Edward Jekyll. See, he simply was living out of the outside of who he was on the inside. We can't change what's on the outside, my friends. Look in the mirror. Guess what? That's who you are on the inside. And so there has to be more than simply reformation. There has to be transformation. And so the point I want you to hear in this first point is you have to recognize reality. This is reality check. I am who I am on the outside because of who I am on the inside. If I don't know my identity, all I have to do is spend some time looking at the fruit of my life. For it helps to see, to shed a light on that which is within. We must recognize reality. We must recognize our identity. And we must recognize our responsibility. It's not simply enough to say, oh well, that's the way I am. Jesus and God the Father does not judge us by our abilities, but rather by our obligations. And stop trying to live from the outside in. Because you'll never make it. It's only when you recognize that what's needed is transformation that you can begin to live from the inside out. Well, this brings me to my second point. It is 
That Jesus has come not to reform us, but to change us from the inside out. I love the end of this passage. We see, it says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The issue is the heart. Now in Hebrew, this word heart really was a symbol of the inside of a person. What was inside of them. It's almost like what was inside would flow out into the outside. But the wonderful thing about this is earlier in the New Testament, Jesus says, if you change a bad bad tree to a good one, it will bear good fruit. See, if what we needed was more information, God would have sent an educator. If we needed more inspiration, God would have sent a great public speaker. But because we needed transformation, God sent a Savior. Someone who could transform our heart from the inside out. Isn't that the story of the Bible? I will take your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. It's from death to life. That's what the resurrection is all about. The cross to the tomb. Ephesians, Paul I think says it best. And he says, remember... Church at Ephesus, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. All of you at this time lived like this, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. Indeed, you're bearing fruit for death. It makes sense if you go into a place where is death, there will only be death that comes out of it. But because of His great mercy, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. And God raised us up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly realms. See, the truth of the matter is humanity has a diseased heart. The reason humanity bears fruit for death is because we're dead on the inside. And no reform or new rules in school or treaties among nations can solve the problem of the heart. But Jesus came to make us alive when we were dead. Jesus came to change the heart. How did he do that? You know, the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a very interesting one, isn't it? Because at the end, we see who Dr. Jekyll is, right? He's Mr. Hyde simply by another name. But how does one take Mr. Hyde and turn him into a totally new person? The person, the facade on the outside of Dr. Jekyll, that it's really real from the inside out. Somebody has to be able to get into here and work a miracle. And so when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, Christ took on our inner corruption and took it to himself and died the death we should have died and lived the life that we should have lived. And he rebirthed us into a new and living hope. How can you live different as a Christian? Because Christ is in you. Hope of glory. I remember when I became a Christian things that used to not bother me at all 
started to bother me, which was a shame. You know, it's very easy to not be a believer, frankly. It's a lot harder to be a Christian. Because a Christian, I want to do something, and yet I feel the pressure of the world not to. Isn't it like Paul, remember? I want to do this, but there's this other thing pulling at me. See, the difference that what changed in me was my heart. Saw the world in a different way. Cared about people in a different way. And I didn't like what I saw in the mirror. God was transforming me. And God has continued to transform me. The scriptures say, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Do you want to experience what it means to know the life of God within you? It's not a question of effort. It's a question of surrender. God can take the deadest thing and He can bring it to life. There's a garden in the back of my house that was put together by my wife. It's actually on the side. It's called Mark's Garden. Uh, for some of you that don't know, I lost, uh, we lost uh, my oldest son last year. Uh, in a, a tragedy and um, you know we're, we're the folks that got the phone call frankly um, and my son uh, was killed he was shot and he ran into a tree and I was uh, I got there on the scene when the police were there and I saw that and slowly it was revealed to me everything and as my wife and I recovered sort of from the shock of it and we started to see God work in amazing ways and my son's writings and how he lived his life, we started to see life emerge from what we, where we thought it never could. My wife had a great idea. I didn't think it was so great at the time, but I loved it. I love it now. She said, I want you to go, and Mark's car ran into a tree. He was shot and killed instantly, but his car, and so they cut down the tree, but what was left was the stump of the tree and it was just sort of sitting there and people had put memorial things around it. And Leon said, I want you to go get that stump and bring it back. Well, I really didn't want to do it because that scene for me was only of death. But thank goodness God has given me a wife smarter than myself. And so I went and I got this and I set it down in this little area and we cleared it and there really wasn't anything around it and we started putting mulch and some lining in a park bench and that was it. But then my wife started planting all around it, even on it. And slowly as we sat, it started to grow. And every single one of the plants had a purpose. It had a message. It was a certain color. It bloomed at a certain time. And my wife sent me something earlier today. I was asking her about gardening. And she told me about... Uh, this rose, this gardenia, I planted last year in Mark's garden, looked dead, but I didn't pull it out. And now that very plant has the first white bloom of all the gardenias. There was life in it. Sometimes things look dead, but you can't see on the inside, can you? I don't know where you're at on the outside. You may feel like I'm not bearing any fruit whatsoever. I'm tired of this world, and I'm tired of this Christianity thing. But you see, the most important thing is what's going on in here. When you take your heart of stone, and you put it in front of Jesus, 
and then say to him, it may be all that I have, but it's yours. He will take a tree stump or a gardenia or a broken heart and he will bring it to life. So start from within. Surrender to God. Plant down your feet into the soil of the gospel and say, grow me. Here I stand. And allow this shaper, the gardener, the father, to prune you and shape you and clean you so that you turn up into something beautiful. This brings me to my final point. That because if you are a believer in Christ, you have a new heart. You can now live from the inside out. Notice what it says in verse 45, that the, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Maybe your scriptural passage says, bears or brings forth. See, we do have a responsibility to tend the garden that God has given us. The good man out of his heart brings good things. See, the wonder about God is this, that He comes alongside of us. He doesn't simply want to be a Savior. He wants to be a Father. And He wants to help us tend our own life. And so He says, Come, dear child. Let's work together. Let's make something beautiful. And so as I, a Christian, walk in accordance with Jesus Christ, remember, you can bear no fruit by yourself. But I am the vine and you are the branches. And if a man abides in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He's saying, stay planted in me and who you are. Stay focused in me, surrendered to me. The work at the end of the day is to trust God and to bear fruit. I don't know if you're a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker. I don't know if you're a man or a woman. I don't know if you're old. I don't know if you're young. But God has planted you into a particular garden. And He said, I want to use you to bring my glory throughout the world. And so plant. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Your feet on the gospel. And bring forth fruit. Lord, I'll bring it. I just need for you to make it good. And that's a promise that He will deliver on. Because Christ has given us a new nature. Let us endeavor to live out the Christian life from the inside out. For our nature reveals our nurture. So I guess my final question is this, so what? So what? We all leave. We all go home. We all go to our jobs on Monday. I don't know about you, but my desire for your hearts and mine is that in the inside of who we are, we wouldn't be deserts, but we would be gardens. That the life that we would have is not simply a force, but the Spirit of God Himself who would walk alongside us in the garden. And the day by day, each one of us would produce a fruit of righteousness that people would look at Redeemer and they would say, surely there is a God 
for look at this harvest that has been produced out of this church. That's my prayer for you and for me. And by God's grace, He will come true with His word. For out of a good tree, there will be good fruit. And by His grace, let that be us. Let us pray. Lord, I need you. Lord, we need you. You cannot live from the outside in. It's too tiring. And it's too fake. And it's too disingenuous. Lord, but you have come into our hearts. You've given us new birth, new life, new hope, a new presence. And so, Lord, help us to rest humbly upon you. Producing fruit by abiding in you. Walking in faith as you are faithful. Lord, and let life spring up from inside us in this church to this community beyond. All of this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.